listening to the Salt Churches podcast. Here you can listen to messages, inspiration, and lessons learned about planting micro churches all across the nation. Thank you for tuning in. To find more information, you can visit us at www.saltchurches.com. This podcast is brought to you today by Salt Church's founder, Parker Green. Parker, welcome to episode 13 of the Abnormal Tribe podcast. Good to have you on, man. Good to be here, man. Yeah, well, why don't you... So most people who are listening to this aren't going to know who you are, and you come with very high recommendations from Seth Barnes. He said that we really need to have you on and hear about what you're doing now. So give people a brief overview of where you're at now and what you're doing. And then I'd like to kind of jump back in the timeline. Yeah, no problem. So quickly, my wife and I lived in New York City um, and we were campus pastors at a church in New York um, over a couple of campuses, men's ministry, stuff like that. And we ended up feeling called to Southern California. We moved out here and we co-founded Salt Churches together at the beginning of 2017. So we started in January 2017. Nice. So are y'all? Are you originally from New York City or from New York? No. So I'm kind of roundabout. So I grew up in Washington State, actually, in Spokane. Okay. Most people on your podcast probably wouldn't have heard of it. <laughs> and then uh, moved to Southern California my last year of high school. Then I moved to Australia for three, back to California for four, and um, New York for four. That's where I met Jess. Um, we got married. We had our first baby, David Leonidas, and we moved back um, recently. So she's never been here before, lived here before, but took her out here 4th of July one year, and she was sold. So Wow. Here we so are. you've been kind of around the world. You've been all kind over of, the place. Yeah. <laughs> kind of, yeah. So <laughs> what, what, what brought you to California or to Australia, and what were you doing there? Um, I was studying at Hillsong um, International Leadership College, so studying wow. just pastoral leadership and um, interning with the youth ministry out there. So mostly junior high ministry stuff, small group stuff, um, discipleship, and just general junior high foolishness, like cleaning poop off walls at summer <laughs> camps, like that's been smeared all over the place. <laughs> just wow. all the all the good things. <laughs> I've actually never talk to anybody who has studied at Hillsong. What, what, what is Hillsong like? I don't, I don't think I even know anybody who's ever been to Hillsong in Australia. What, what's it, That's what's hard. it like down there? I mean, it'd be hard to put it in encapsulate three years in, uh, I think even in one podcast, <laughs> but, um, <laughs> what they're doing and what their, their reach around the world is incredible. And that's kind of what got us out there. My brother was out there as well. And my, my sister as well and my brother-in-law were actually um, leading the youth ministry at the time. So that's was kind of my in for the internship and stuff. And I would say um, what I, I learned how to work. I mean, I was doing probably 40 to 50 hours a week volunteer work. Um, I was in class 20 hours a week, working 20 hours a week, and then doing cast jobs on the side, whatever I could get. So it was 100 hours plus a week of ministry and survival and <laughs> discipleship wow. and spending time with people at the same time. So it was fun. Yeah. I mean, it was a blast. I lived on the beach for three years basically um, and went to school. So it was a really, really good time. That's uh, I love that. I think I'm going to reference here. I think it's Todd White. He talks about like, you can't get burned out of 
you can't get burned out of Jesus. You can get burned out of ministry. So it sounds yeah. like you were you were just living Jesus for a hundred hours yeah, a week. Because I, I, I you would that. think if it was work, you'd be totally burned out of that. <laughs> There's definitely some damage in there, but I think that's that always goes two ways. I think when people say like, "Oh, the church damaged me," I'm like, "Well, you were an idiot as well. Like you couldn't say no." So, so it's yeah. not you know you can never play the victim with stuff like that. I think. The answer was always yes in that environment. And the answer was always go in that environment. And um, it's part of the reason they are as big as they are. And maybe part of the reason they have probably more turnover than they like in their mid-level management. So I think it goes both ways. I think you can choose. <laughs> but um, the atmosphere and the environment was amazing. And I think in a lot of ways, it set me on the path um, that I'm on now. So I have a lot to thank them for. The there's a question that just pops to my mind of how do you, having done, you know, ministry for a year, it, it's sad to say, but I mean, I think there's a lot of, I know a lot of my friends probably felt the same way. It's like you're doing min- ministry all day long and you get to the point where you kind of forget God. So how do, I wonder if you have an answer to this. Did you, how, how do you stay present? How do you stay present with the Lord while doing ministry 24 right. seven, you know? 80 hours a week, 100 hours a week, and not feel like you're just working, and that, but that you're actually you know, serving the Lord and you're walking with Him? Well, I think sometimes you just don't. Because, <laughs> I mean, you're, I mean you're, a human, you're a human being, you know what I mean? So yeah. Um, yeah. especially in our society today, being present isn't a high value. So I think there's a lot of distraction, a lot of things that keep you there. But I think the biggest problem that we have, especially in Western society, is that we separate the secular and sacred. So it's like a church is one thing, work is another. This kind of work is not as filled with God. I think a lot of people exclude Jesus from things that they do because they don't think he's good at it. And I think it's one of, like, it's one of those things where it's like, oh, well, God's like Jesus isn't good at finance. He was a nice guy. He was okay. He was a great religious teacher. And that's how we really think of him. We don't think of an all-consuming, fire, resurrected Jesus who really holds the whole universe in his hands and runs it competently. And he's, he's got it all sorted. So I think we don't bring Jesus into our work, first of all, because we don't think he's Lord of our work. A lot of people think it's, oh, well, I'm just forgetting about him. Well, yeah, but what if you ask Jesus a question about what you needed to get done? <laughs> and I think it come, it's the same for ministry. It's the same for any other job because I, across the board, if you look at it correctly, it, it's, it is ministry. Daily life is ministry, being equipped for that. So, yeah, I think that's the biggest thing. Jesus is better at your job than you are. And I think that's what helps helped me really bring him into what I'm doing. Like, you know, some days, like, I get nothing done because my boys are just losing their, their damn minds. <laughs> you know, I have two boys. They're Irish twins, about a year and a month apart. And they're both have very strong personalities like their mother and father and i think uh, sometimes i just have to stop and go look discipling these boys is changing the world and if i don't get this right i don't get anything else right so there's two sides to that too it's like that 100 hours a week thing i was doing when i was 18 19 20 21 i think when you get into your 30s and 40s hopefully you're exchanging strength for wisdom and you're starting to use wisdom to leverage your time. And at the beginning, you've got to hustle. You've got to run. You've got to devour that thing. But in the end, it's like, okay, well, I've got to leverage this and change it. So 
I think my life has changed from that time. I still know how to hustle, still need, need, you know, know how to work when the time comes, but it's far more seasonal than it used to be. I, I've got two questions come to mind. And the first one is, what was the, for you, specifically like your journey, what was the tipping point where you kind of had to choose between, you know, move from like the all hustle to more of the wisdom side? Like what was, was there a catalyst there? Was there a specific instance? Um, man, I think it's when people started to get in the way of me trying to work. <laughs> and I realized I had a problem. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, oh, wow, you have a problem, yeah. dude. Like you're like, if anyone was in my path, it was more like, Hey, like help me achieve this goal. And for a while I could keep people following me that way because, because of force of personality or whatever. Um, but over, you know, a certain amount of time, you start to burn people or hurt people. And, you know, you really hurt yourself when you do that. So I think the tipping point for me was really just getting married and starting a family and looking at my life and going, well, what, what's my, what's my 60 year plan? And then taking it even further from there, what's my 200, 300, 400 year plan? If, you know, Jesus doesn't come back, whatever your eschatology is like, yeah. Like, what does my family look like when this thing branches out? Because I don't want to be a weak link in that chain, because that's probably the biggest impact anybody can have. So that's the people that see you 24-7. So I think that's when it really changed for me. I was like, I just need to work smarter. I need to work through relationships. I need to love my family and love people better. And I'm not perfect. I'm just, I still work too hard. I still have probably three late nights a week where I'm up until 11 writing or doing something. But I still managed to make it work. So that's really good. I, I, this is going to be this kind of the nice thing about having a podcast. You can ask the questions you want to ask. But <laughs> yeah. uh, I mean, this, this really strikes home for me. I, I'm definitely, and, and not to, you know, it's not like a pat on the back. Um, it's okay. For him, I definitely, yeah. I mean, I, I kind of fall into the category of putting work uh, before most everything else. And so, I mean, this is really good. It's really good. I, I kind of want to pick your brain here of how did you choose to cut back and, and what did you choose to cut back in your life to make more time for your family and the things that were more important? Like, how do you take the step from like, it's your personality. You work all the time. Yeah. You know, you work 80 hours a week, hundred hours a week. It's not really that big. Of, you know, it's just the way you grew up. That's your personality is what you love to do because you love to work. I do love, I then, do love working. Yeah. Yeah. So how do you, but you also like in my brain, it's like, okay, I know that there's these other things that are super beneficial for my life that I'm not making time for. Mm -hmm. So how do you start cutting back into your work? Well, I think, I think the biggest thing that I chose to do was I, I needed to define success for myself, not what other people were telling me success was and not um, what the world tells me it is. Um, I, I think the biggest thing is Material success was was important to me, of course, you know, providing for my family, um, securing a future for them in that way, and some things I really liked. But I think the biggest thing was I, I had to sit down over a few week period and really assess who I was as a person. And this is a very imperfect walk. Like, but you have to like, working is like a, it's like a drug. So you can go back to it. <laughs> and sometimes you can <laughs> yeah. kind of tap into it and leverage it for your advantage. But a lot of times it can, you know, your soul and your body get tired and then you're weak mentally. And that's when you start to run into trouble. But I think 
I defined success for myself. I said, okay, so I'm looking, I'm sitting down. I, I put, I literally mentally pictured myself sitting in a big leather chair in like the future library that I want to have, like surrounded by thousands of books, like considering myself like an important person at like my, like my cabin <laughs> in the woods somewhere, you know what I mean? Somewhere in the Sierra Nevada or, yeah. you know, Vale or something like that, where I've just got this just amazing house that like the whole family comes to for Christmas, right? So I'm sitting in that chair as like a 75 year old, 80 year old and looking around myself and thinking, what is, what does my life look like? And I think what I, what I eventually wanted to do was have a legacy of disciple making. And when I say that, I mean, making spiritual sons and daughters that go on to make more spiritual sons and daughters and bring the kingdom in whatever they do. And once I could define that relationships skyrocketed in their importance. And and sometimes I still, I suck at this, but if I can keep that in mind, that really we're like a, a war, a war family. That's the best way I can say it. Like the church is a, is a family yeah. at war together. Like we're bound in yeah. blood together to expand the kingdom of heaven, to destroy the works of the enemy and to continue the mission that Jesus has given us. And sometimes war is work, <laughs> but the reality is yeah. that a lot of it is that kinship from common mission. So really, I've, I, I take whole swaths of whole days now just talking to people. And I feel guilty for it because I want to get on my computer and get things done. But my wife corrected me multiple times because she has a better relationship with God than I do. Um, but like, <laughs> look, like this, what you're doing is work. That's what you're supposed to be doing. You expand the kingdom through relationships. So. Um, Got to get rid of that guilt complex and then define success for yourself and don't let anyone else define it for you because nobody's going to stand in front of the great white throne for you. <laughs> You're, you and yeah, only you are yeah. going to be judged for the fruit in your life. So how you treated people along the way. So it's good. So, you know, for you, success was making disciples that make disciples. Right, a legacy of disciple making, right. And you mentioned, is that your 60 year, 100 year, 400 year plan as well? Is that kind of how you? Yeah, that's, I mean, that's how I see it. I, I mean, I see, uh, you know, my family expanding over that many years looks like the kingdom of heaven expanding through these families, through, you know, micro churches, which I'm sure we'll talk about soon. But like even my own cellular family, my, my family at home, like what is, what are my kids, kids, kids look like? And that I want them to be making disciples and enjoy the kingdom as it's supposed to be lived, like fully alive in Christ. So I really think discipleship, if you can boil it down, is teaching people how to hear Jesus, walk with Jesus, and obey him. So simple. A question, this actually comes up a lot, and I ask a lot of different people this question. I just interviewed Gary Black, which that podcast should be coming on tonight. But we talk about the kingdom of God a lot. And, you know, the Bible mentions mentions the kingdom of God probably more than anything else. So, like, when expanding the kingdom of God, when you think about that, what what does that mean? And what does that mean for you yeah. of, like, we're here on this earth to expand the kingdom of God. But when you really boil that down, like, you know, how would you define that? Wow. Um, I mean, it's a great question. And it's not a question I don't have an answer for. I just think it's a great question. So I'm complimenting you on it. <laughs> we, we just actually made a video about microchurches. We just posted on Facebook today and on YouTube. But really, what I see the kingdom of heaven is, is God's in, original intention for people and for relationship. 
Because if you think of the biggest hurts and the biggest problems and the biggest joys and the biggest celebrations in your life, like whatever whatever situation you're in where you're overcome by emotion or you felt fully alive or you felt exactly the opposite, guaranteed it was some kind of relationship that caused that to happen in your life. So when I look at like what happened with Adam and Eve, so God says, be fruitful and multiply, right? Rule and subdue the earth. And then I fast forward all the way to the second Adam, Jesus. And I'm assuming most people listening to this are Christians. So like the first Adam screwed up, Jesus came, he's the second Adam. He fixes the whole thing, right? He's starting a new family and a new group of people. And he gives us the exact same command, which is be fruitful and multiply. But he phrases it differently in saying, go into all the world and make disciples. And I think the kingdom of heaven comes through individuals learning how to follow Jesus in their individual walk with him and in a prayerful, loving community that's on mission together. So if you can have millions of these little pockets of believers, like, and I, I do mean millions, uh, these pockets of believers in cities and towns all over the place, then of course the kingdom of heaven is going to be felt, it's going to be smelled, it's going to be sensed in the way that even the government itself runs in that place, in, in the way people treat each other, in the way that church is run or you know, effectively helps one another and people being activated in their giftings, I think atmospheres really change. So for me, the kingdom of heaven is the multiplication of God's family on the earth to rule and subdue it. And I don't, I don't have a clear, like, like I said before, eschatology on it. Like maybe Jesus will come down out of the clouds, um, like Paul the Apostle says. And I believe that Revelation is like a Daniel-esque book that at some point, like there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. I just, I can't derive exactly how God's going to do that. But in the meantime, I'm going to take as many people as I can with me into the kingdom of heaven. And I mean the kingdom of heaven, like living now, here, present in the yeah. kingdom of the heavens. And of course you're going to go to heaven because you're already living in it and you're friends with God. So he's going to want his friends with him. <laughs> this is a, a really interesting topic because I mean, I'm kind of ashamed to say this, but uh, it's just the truth. But if you would ask me like two years ago, what is heaven? Like to me, heaven was always a destination. It wasn't something I was yeah. living in now. Yeah. Same, same. Or, for sure. What was the, Tip, I mean, yeah, what was the tipping point? What was the catalyst that for you brought you to realize like, wow, like, you know, Jesus says the kingdom of God is here and he actually meant that. And it's not just this destination. It's something that we walk in uh, um, in the present. Dallas Willard <laughs> and his book, The Divine Conspiracy. Uh, it about? It's about the divine conspiracy. I mean, it's a great title. He was a um, professor at USC out here in California. He just passed away recently and I'm kind of bummed because I moved out here and just missed him. Um, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I was like, I really wanted to meet that guy. But it's basically about how the kingdom of the heavens is here and present. You can actually do what Jesus asks you to do. You can actually do what Jesus asks you asks you to do. That's the crazy thing that I read. It was like, wait, no. So we can actually do what he asked us to do in the Sermon on the Mount. We can actually do that. <laughs> and, and he lays out a very clear way and that Jesus shows us how to do it. And when I thought heaven, a lot of English speaking people think sky, right? And he explained yeah. that even with the vision that Peter had with all the animals that came down in that sheet, when he says out of the heavens, it means the space right in front of him. So when a Jewish person was saying, you know, the kingdom of heaven, there were multiple heavens and heaven 
part of heaven was what was around us on the earth. So the actual air that we breathe, what's around us, it's present, it's here, because God rules over it. So it, it, it's not just some pie in the sky place. If Jesus lives in us and he is basically filling all of heaven, then wherever we go <laughs> should look like that. <laughs> and that was the book yeah. that, that tipped everything for me, I would say. When did you read that? 2015. So that's not too long ago. What? So okay, you read that book and you kind of come to this realization of the kingdom of God is here. What What happened after that? A number of things happened. Um, God just started clicking things along. Um, things were going well with our church in New York. I was just personally, I think, dissatisfied and trying to figure out how I could make as many disciples as possible after reading that. I just didn't have a clue as to how to step into to it necessarily. And someone from Adventures and Missions um, called us, who I didn't know and didn't really trust at first. It was Clint Bokelman, because I didn't know anything about Adventures and Missions. I didn't know anything about the world race. I knew my wife went on it, and I was like, they're like a bunch of like weird like <laughs> spiritual people that like travel the world like hippies, and they are smelly, and you can like kind of spot them in an airport grouping together on crappy <laughs> PCs, trying to look for re- free Wi-Fi with black coffee. So it was like one of those things where I was like, who are these people? <laughs> That's like the most little, accurate description I've ever heard. So well done. Like well it's done. a weird subculture. And the headbands, man. Like the headbands are like, I don't know what it is. <laughs> I think the headbands have finally phased out. So yeah, thankfully. Maybe, I understand like maybe keeping like that Southeast Asian sweat out of your face or something. But like when you're in like Denver airport, it's like just chill. So... <laughs> So I think the I think for me he called and basically said, "Hey, follow me as I follow Jesus. Follow me, I'll make you a fisher of men." I'm like, "I'm not sure if you're allowed to say that." Um, <laughs> but let's give this a shot because at that point I was just like, "I I just I needed something, I guess I guess I needed red meat. You know what I mean?" Yeah. Like I needed to put my teeth in something and taste blood in my mouth. It's like that that scene from Fight Club where it's like the first time it's a crazy movie and I can't recommend it because I'm, you know, leading a church, <laughs> but, and the Great book is even though. crazier. So if you're going to, if you're going to do anything, don't read the book, <laughs> watch the movie because the book is even crazier. Oh, wow. um, but he says, he says to that guy running the shop, that Indian guy running the shop that was going to no. be a veterinarian. And he takes his license away from him, tells him to get on his knees and puts a gun to his head. And he, he pulls out his license, he checks his address, copies his address, and keeps the license with him. And he says, if I come back here in three months, or whenever it is, if I come back here in three months, and you're not in veterinarian school, I'm going to kill you. <laughs> it was like one of those moments where I'm like, you know what? I wish someone would have done that to me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And the, just it just makes, it made sense to me the way that Jesus called his disciples into discipleship with Letting them know at the front end, look, this is going to be brutal. You're going to be reborn. And if you've ever been a part of a birthing process, <laughs> labor is wild. <laughs> it's messy and it's hard and it's like, it's crazy. So I just think being reborn isn't necessarily like the cleanest process that we make it out to be like, oh, I said my prayer. It's like, Jesus, is like, no, you're being like reborn. Like, you're going to have to figure out how to live all over again. You can't just keep the old stuff. You're a different person. So that's kind of that's kind of the mentality that I got into, and I'm still into. It's it's more militaristic than some, but 
I don't think we live in a world where we need half measures anymore. So it's things have swung so wildly against what Jesus stands for and who he is as a person. And the need is so much greater now that I think we can't survive unless we stay on mission. So, so Clint called you up, says, Hey, you know, come follow me. What happened after that? I mean, what's the, what's that story? Well, yeah, he laid out expectations. We got on the phone or Skype every week and he was like, you have to make disciples that make disciples. So you can't just keep meeting with me. You've got to start meeting with other people and teaching them the way of Jesus. And it's like, I mean, it's, it comes back to the same metaphor. It's like the first rule of fight club is don't talk about fight club, but the more you try and keep it a secret, it's like the more the word gets out. So you just end up, we, we ended up meeting with more people and just kind of figuring out as they're going along, to be honest, like just yeah. opening the Bible and saying, what does Jesus say? How do we do it? What does Jesus say? How do we do it? And just repeating that process while staying in communion with him. Because I think the biggest goal or any goal of discipleship should be unbroken fellowship with Christ. I just think if we can stay connected to the vine then discipleship is working. So was this going on? When you're meeting with Clint, was this while you were in New York? I'm yeah. assuming. Yeah. What What was uh? I really want to dig into kind of the story of how you got out to California. So you started a church in New York, or you were working in a church. Did yeah. you start? No, we didn't yeah. start it. My brother-in-law and sister started it. So they moved from was, Sydney, and they were in New York. Was that a house church, or was that more of no, a, no? It was a regular church, but more like a parish model, I guess you could say. They called their campuses communities, so groups of like 150 to 200 people meeting in different locations or different boroughs in New York. So I, okay. my wife and I ended up running two of those, but really we were running one most of the time called Union Square, which is like kind of in the central part of lower Manhattan. What what got you into like micro churches, you know, compared to conventional churches and, and- What's kind of your your thoughts on that? Well, I, yeah, for me, it's not as like romantic as some people. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> like, they're like, oh, I love the family aspect or this. And I'm like, well, for me, it was just like, well, how do we saturate an entire city? Yeah, Because I was looking at the churches that we had in New York City. And um, I think the biggest new arrival um, in Manhattan would, would have been Hillsong Church. Right. And I don't know what their attendance numbers are, but let's say... Twelve to 15,000 people attending in their first few years um, in New York City. And, they're, you know, they're packing out services six, seven times a day. What those numbers are, I have no idea. But <laughs> if they, I mean, their next option would have been Madison Square Garden for a venue, which they never would get, or purchasing a huge plot of land in Manhattan. So basically, you have to build a new part of Manhattan if you want land, because it's all gone. And if they... If they expanded to 10 services in Madison Square Garden, you're looking at the 25,000 people per service, right? So let's say you get 200,000 people attending your church on a Sunday. There are eight, I think, 0.7 million people in New York on the books. You're not even scratching the surface. So you're, you're, at, you're in the lower, you're in single digit percentages still. So what I thought was, well, how, how do you invade a city? properly how do you start a revolution that you that gets out of hey, control Parker, that there? actually shifts culture and i thought well what if you could have a church in every house in every apartment in every park in every Parker. coffee shop in every restaurant every pub bar anywhere people could meet 
uh, I don't want to call them house churches. We call them micro churches just because house churches tend to get the wrong people because <laughs> we don't want community for community's sake. But what if you could do that? What if you could overwhelm an entire city with um, what God wanted to do in making disciples that multiply in groups of 10 to 50 people meeting at homes? I think you could actually change the world and change cities. I think the tipping point for a culture shift is around 40%. So in New York, you're looking at what? Oh, three and a half million people that you need to see in discipleship in the kingdom to see the culture really shift over time. So that's where it came. I, was, I looked at the churches that we were running. I looked at the churches that were in the city that were you know, famous and killing it. And I was like, that's not going to work in 30 years. There, it has to break down into something smaller or we're screwed. So when you start discipling people, is that, I'm, I'm assuming that's something that you really kind of drive home. It's like, hey, guys, like if I'm going to disciple you, you really need to go out and disciple others? Or yep. Yep. Is, that, is that a right away thing? Or is it? That's an as soon as possible thing. Okay. Um, because in the kingdom, you get what you give. So for me, it's like, well, I don't know that much. Well, do you know John 3.16? Great. Go share it. You know what I mean? Give yeah. it to somebody. You've got to give this thing away. Otherwise, the whole discipleship process becomes about you and becomes about navel gazing and fixing problems in yourself. But a lot of the fixing in our lives, a lot of making order out of chaos in our lives comes in the doing of what Jesus yeah. said, not just sitting around and thinking about it. <laughs> so I love that. So that's the biggest thing. It's like, love your neighbor as yourself. Well, you can think about that all day long, but knocking on the door and handing out some brownies and like going the extra mile for a neighbor, like something stupid, like, Hey, I noticed you have kids. Can I clean your house at some point? Like, you know what I mean? Like that yeah. changes you. It's not sitting in your house thinking about it. How do you, is that a hard concept? I mean, I feel like, I mean, maybe in my life, I, I catch myself a lot of times where I've become so introspective and so self-improvement oriented that you totally forget about the world around you and what i've noticed is when i'm not thinking about myself that's and like what you were just saying when we turn our eyes away from ourselves that that's when we grow that's when we get closer to the lord that's when we get closer to our communities and that's when we become a better person but it's really easy to kind of turn your eyes inward and, and try to fix things yeah and, and i think we all have to come to the realization that we're not our own savior I think when we try and save ourselves is when we went, run into really big problems. Like whatever the book is or whatever thing it is, like when you like try and, you know, make a some kind of blood or effort sacrifice for yourself, then you start to realize that you don't have enough blood. You don't have enough sweat. You don't have enough tears. You, know, you just don't have enough. So it's like that stupid Pinterest thing that's going around. It's like, you're enough. I'm like, no, you're not. That's the whole point of the gospel is that you're not yeah. <laughs> and that you need Jesus. And then then you'll have more than enough. And the things that you do will be beyond your capacity because God transforms you. But I just, I don't buy into that. I, I just, it, it's hard to, it's hard to do because I'm like, I love reading. So I'll read anything, you know? Yeah, but uh, actually doing what it says is is the beauty of it. I mean, think about the early church; they didn't have a Bible; they just did what Jesus said, and it worked. Yeah, very well, they true. Had, they had the Old Testament, right? But only few a few people get their hands on it, and only the Jewish church really knew it. So, I I love this. What? How do you? I really want to dive 
kind of deeper into this. So when you take someone and you disciple them, what does that process look like? And, and what are you expecting? What are your expectations of them? Not just between your relationship with that person, but also the relationships that they need to go build. Right. So I'll sit down with someone usually at the very beginning and it depends, it's different with every person. And I think that's the biggest thing. It's like, look, like there's no way like that you're going to have a program that works for every single person. But basically, but I, I just wrote this, I just brain dumped these thoughts. So basically you have the call to discipleship, right? So first you tell someone and make it really, really clear that they're in discipleship because a lot of people mentor, a lot of people buddy mentor, a lot of people have coffees together. But if you're not clear on the status of the relationship, neither side really knows how much to commit. So if you're telling someone like, look, follow me as I follow Christ, then your commitment actually is bigger than the person making the commitment to follow you because you're committed to them. So when people are like, oh, I feel scared saying that. I feel like I'm selling something. I'm like, no, you're not. You're, <laughs> you're telling somebody, you're, you're bonding yourself to somebody to see them basically succeed in Christ. Yeah. And that's a big deal. And it doesn't always work out. Relationships sometimes don't. And sometimes people just fall off. But the reality is like the, the clarity has to be there. And I find Jesus being really clear with his disciples that they were following him. Otherwise, you're just really not loving that person because you're setting secret expectations and writing secret contracts for them that they're not fulfilling. And that's where like resentment and stupid crap comes in the relationship that gets in the way. So if it's all out in the open from the start and you like your intentions are clear, then the trust is built from the start. And then I think deliverance, a lot of deliverance happens next, like pulling people into the kingdom, walking together in the kingdom, showing them what the kingdom looks like. Then over time, they mature. So for me, it looks like meeting with guys one-on-one. It looks like having them at my house all the time. It looks like them drinking all my wine and my (laughs) wife getting mad. It looks like, you know what I mean? It it looks like them drinking my last beer and not thinking about it. You know, it looks like them walking through issues in life here at my house. It looks like them encouraging me in reverse. No, it looks like so many things in life because discipleship is not just like a meeting. It is a life. Just like salvation is not a moment, it's a life because your whole life gets saved. So for me, it looks like an open door a lot of times. A lot of meals together, a lot of time together, and a lot of scripture shared and learning how to obey Christ together and a lot of doing. So, Wow. I'm going to switch topics a little bit. I, I yeah. Let's talk about you know what you're doing now and, and why you chose to move from New York to California and, and what your vision is there. Yeah. Well, I did a, in 2000, what was it? 2015 now, 2015, January, 2015, I did a a 21 day fast and um, it was actually for the stuff that I was doing at the time. I was helping, um, you know, restart a church in the Upper West Side. I was running the Union Square one, which my wife was starting to take over at the time, Jesse, helping start the uh, men's movement, the men's ministry at the church I was at. So a lot of my plate and I had a baby boy on the way. Wow. So um, I was like, God, I just, I really am desperate for you to come through in every single circumstance and situation here. And then he just wouldn't leave me alone about California. I kept having visions of it. He kept talking to me about it. He kept talking to me about the Jesus people movement in the 60s and 70s, the Azusa stuff. He said, it's time again, it's time again, it's time again, it's time again. 
and just wouldn't shut up about it. But this is right after I got a substantial raise and I'm talking like substantial, <laughs> like an extra 35% um, oh, wow. income. Just got health insurance and my wife just really started killing it with her job and had also been hired at the church. So everything, we just got a, a you know, a rad apartment in Manhattan. So all, everything was lining up, you know what I mean? Yeah. And God just said, you need to leave. So we packed everything. Well, after a bunch of conversations with my family, with a lot of disagreement and then agreement. And I mean, it was family, <laughs> like literal family, not just church family. So there yeah. was a lot of stuff that happens in there where there's a lot of emotions involved. Like you love each other and everyone's called to their own thing in the end. So it was just one of those situations that was difficult, but needed to be done. And every, I think in the end, everyone was really gracious about it and it worked out really well and they supported us and they still do both in their words and in like financially. <laughs> so they put their money <laughs> where their mouth is. They're not just like good riddance. They're like actually send us cash. Yeah. So we came out here. I drove out with my dad across the country in our Jeep and just packed up everything we owned or hadn't gotten rid of into the Jeep and drove across the country, ordered some furniture and started a church two months after we arrived. So um, yeah, so we rolled and then got pregnant that January with our second boy. So what, uh, you mentioned a couple of times and I love asking I forgot to tell you, I lived with my parents for three months before we left New York in their Brooklyn apartment in the back room oh, with our newborn was, baby. Was that was that tough? Was that a hard ego? I mean, I, I feel like that would be tough for me. Was that was that tough for you? Yeah, yeah, definitely. It was. I mean, it was crazy. Like life in general was crazy. Man. So uh, I just think it was it was one of those things where I just it was a very humbling experience. Yeah to say the least and being a new dad at the same time. Yeah, that's, that's a lot to go on at one time. Thanks for tuning in today. We hope you feel inspired, encouraged, and empowered to change the world for the name of Jesus. Make sure to tune in and listen to our other podcasts and download our app, Salt Churches, found on iTunes. We hope to see you and hear from you soon. Thanks. Have a great day.